stand up. This is, uh, this is Phil. We did not plan this. I know we look like the Bopsy twins. I did not call him, but this is my father, if you guys don't know this. This is Phil Ruby, new bass player. And for some reason, we decided to color coordinate today. But uh, before we get started, of course, uh, Pastor Matthews, the, fir- the original Pastor Matthews, he's like KFC, he's the original recipe. Amen. I'm going to ask him to just pray for us before we get started. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this privilege of being in your house and be surrounded with love. Thank you for the unity and the power of God and for the anointing of the Lord that's in this house this morning. We just come to receive from your word. Lord, open our hearts. Open our spirits. Uh, Let us reach to higher heights and greater depths in your word. Lord, anoint your servant this morning as he brings forth the bread of life to us. uh, And let us sit at your table uh, and enjoy the blessings of God. In Jesus' name we do pray. And for the glory of God we do ask it. And everybody said... Amen. 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 Praise God. Any doubt he can pray down heaven? Hallelujah. Praise God for Pastor CT. Well, you know, we're going to be talking about spirit detox today. Spirit detox. And, you know, as I began to study uh, throughout the, uh, the books of Corinthians, the letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, something caught my eye. I was trying to stay on task with, with spirit detox, but something really began to catch my eye, and that is... Paul's simplicity of the gospel, amen? The simplicity of the gospel. How many of you know that if we're talking about spirit detox, a cluttered mind is a toxic mind. And a toxic mind is most certainly cluttered. So if I were going to begin to talk about spirit detox, I think one of the first things we need to touch on is decluttering our minds, simplifying some things. And we have complications all throughout life. There are complicated jobs. We have complications in our family. Complications, complications, they abound. That You don't have to look very far to find some complications. Amen? But how many of you know the gospel should be simple? The gospel should be simple and well able to penetrate the hearts and minds and souls of men and women. So Paul begins in 1 Corinthians, and he says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize. Now, of course, Paul had the full authority to baptize, and he did baptize. But he says, My primary position, what I was really called to do, was to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Because how many of you know, if I can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. But if the cross does a work in you, amen? The cross will not lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the the world's brilliant debaters? Well, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish Since God in all his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask from signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. But those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. 
And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. Now, Paul says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. Amen. He chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chooses things that are despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Now, that's a key piece of scripture. No one can ever boast in the presence of God. How many of you know we serve a jealous God? Amen. He wants all the glory because he's deserving of all the glory. Amen. And when, no matter what it is we accomplish and no matter what it is God accomplishes through us, we have no right and we should take no opportunity to boast in that, save boasting about our God. God has united you with Christ Jesus and for our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from our sin. Therefore, the scriptures say, if you want to boast... Boast only about the Lord. So Paul writes, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, the church at Corinth, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything save Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and uh, persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I did this so that you would not trust in human wisdom, but you would trust in the power of God. So we see here weaving into the fabric of talking about the simplicity of the gospel, Paul begins to talk about how unparalleled God's strength is. Even at his weakest, the Father is far mightier than that of his creation or any scheme that man might devise. Yet despite this vast and obvious disproportionate balance of power, God in all his wisdom still calls, uses, and strengthens the lowly among us. And I'm thankful for that. The seemingly powerless, those whom the world would declare lack means or resources, the downcast, downtrodden, and the just plain down and out. Amen? And he does this because when the victories are won, when obedience is rewarded, when what the enemy meant for evil is turned around for good, when the good, good father sees fit to prosper his children, when lost loved ones come back to Jesus, when Jehovah Jireh makes a way out of no way, then no one can boast, save boasting for God. Amen, CT? You see, when God uses the unexpected, When he uses a kid like Joseph, (laughs) who all his brothers hated him, and they were jealous of him, and they tried to kill him. A guy, even when he tried to do right, it seemed like it always turned out wrong. He just had a reputation for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. A fella who every time it seemed like he got on top of a thing, he'd slip right back down into that pit. Amen? When, when God uses the Moseses of the world, who was, supposed, who was supposed to be slaughtered as a baby by Pharaoh, but instead he was merely orphaned by his mother, shipped down a river full of crocodiles in a wicker basket, a guy who had a temper, a little bit of a hot streak, 
couldn't even seem to fit into normal society, so he had to head out into the desert. A man who felt more comfortable talking to sheep than he did to people because he had a speech impediment. When God uses a David who started out on the backside of a mountain, not only the least of his father's sons, but he was so far down the list that they even forgot he was around. A scrawny, red-headed, freckled, heart-plucking poet. When the father chooses a man like this, <laughs> who even, even after coming up smelling like roses, because he became king of Israel, he still can't keep it all together. Even though he seemingly has it all, he still wants more. He's not satisfied with his own wife. He wants somebody else's wife. David can't keep, keep control of his own kids. He's got sons, and excuse this, but he's got sons raping his own daughters and then trying to kill him for the throne. It happened. Trust me when I say that in today's vernacular, David is the definition of a hot mess. But God. Amen. You know it's going to get good when the preacher says, but God. Hallelujah. But God absolutely loves to use a messed up cast of characters like this because there's no way he won't get the glory for it. Praise God. And you know, give him praise. Like father, like son. Amen, dad. Jesus is just like this. Look at who he used. First, he gets a ragtag group of fishermen, not the least of which is Peter, who had some serious anger issues. can relate. Not only was he ready to fight Jewish religious leaders, Roman soldiers, and the devil himself, there were times when he acted like he was about to fight Jesus himself. To beat it all, this is the guy whom Jesus not only says, Simon, your name is now Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. But he also tells Peter that he's giving him to the, key, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does this knowing in advance that Peter is going to go crazy, start cussing out women and children, even denying that Christ is the Messiah three times in one night. This guy, <laughs> this is who Jesus calls and uses. Oh, and he doesn't stop there. Oh, no, throughout his three-year ministry, Jesus even has one of his top cabinet members to be a tax collector of all people. Now, nobody really loves the IRS, right? That's for sure. But we usually don't have much day-to-day -day interaction or awareness of the tax collectors in our day and age, unless you have the misfortune of being audited, which happens occasionally. So to bring it into today's perspective, first century tax collectors had about as good of a reputation as our modern-day politicians. You know, it'd be like Jesus making Tricky Dick Nixon or Hillary Clinton or maybe a Jim Justice one of his disciples. Most of us would be like, what the heck? What's up with that? Well, this guy, Jesus, obviously can't be trusted. When Jesus wasn't hanging around that inner circle, though, his list of usual suspects doesn't get much better. He spent time teaching in the synagogues, of course. I mean, Jesus certainly upheld his spiritual duties. He was a good Jew for the most part. But he absolutely couldn't stand to be around religious folk. You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests who thought themselves to be holier than thou, but whom Jesus referred to as ravenous wolves, whitewashed tombs, rotten, open graves. Yeah, these folks made our Savior sick. Jesus much preferred the company of gluttons, drunkards, prostitutes, 
cheats, swindlers, extremists, and probably even some murderers just to keep it interesting. Now, I'm not trying to get sacrilegious here. But please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus condoned any of these activities. I'm not saying that Jesus was happy with their lifestyle choices. But I am saying with 100% certainty that Jesus loved all these sinners. Amen? And he loved them all the more because, mostly in part because they knew they were sinners. I'm sure they were going around bragging about their indiscretions. But at least they were walking around like they were sinners in their Savior, judging and condemning everyone who wasn't measuring up to their standard of holiness. No, for the most part, these were just blue-collar, hard-working people who just didn't know what they really had to live for. Most were probably living paycheck to paycheck at best, folks trying to scratch out a living despite being oppressed and brutalized under Roman rule. People who, just like you and I, they knew they weren't perfect. They could never attain to the level of righteousness that the religious authority of the day constantly reminded them that an angry God demanded of them. Even though Jesus had to remind the like of priests to get the log out of their own eye before ridiculing the speck in their neighbor's, No, these everyday people, they wouldn't dare point a bony finger at someone else. Much less use God's holy word to make a prophet. (laughs) Wow, now did that tick Jesus off? So, yeah, Jesus hung out with imperfect folks, just like you and I. Praise God. Then, of course, once Jesus ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, things got even juicier. Plans of the reunited father and son got even more diabolical. Enter Saul of Tarsus. Later known as the Apostle Paul, of course. Now remember, we just got done talking about how Jesus had, to put it mildly, he had great disdain for those of an overly religious persuasion. Jesus didn't particularly care for those people. And yet, who's the man chosen to replace the 12th apostle? A Pharisee. Not not just any Pharisee, but by self-proclamation, the most zealous and religious Pharisee of all time. And not only that, but this dude, Saul of Tarsus, was nothing less than a murderer, a religious extremist to say the least. Put more aptly, he was a terrorist. If this happened today, we would most likely put Saul of Tarsus in the camp of Christian beheading jihadists like ISIS. Unfortunately, I'm not exaggerating for dramatic effect here. This is the pre-conversion testimony of our beloved Paul, the apostle. It's in the text. Now, I can't imagine how Paul felt after his encounter with our Lord and Savior on the road to Damascus. I'm sure he was, I'm sure he was none too proud of the things he had done in his past, just like we're none too proud of the things we've done in our past. Heck, some of the things we're even still battling, we wouldn't want plastered on these screens. Amen? But this is the reality. Pre-conversion, pre-relationship with Jesus, Saul hated Christians with a passion and literally thought them to be the scourge of the earth and really believed that it was his God-given duty to eradicate this Christian plague from the planet. Paul used to be a Christian killer. Wait for it. Here it comes. But God. Amen. But God. There it is. God steps in again. Hallelujah. Who else but God would use unlearned, calloused, angry fisherman as the foundation for his church and then give him the keys to the kingdom. Who else but my 
my God would take the greatest terrorist in the land, a straight up murderer of innocent believers, someone who slaughtered anyone who had the audacity to be a follower of the way, and then have him write two-thirds of the New Testament. Have him bridge the seemingly eternal gap between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, circumcised and uncircumcised, using the very tool of Christianity that he sought to destroy. (laughs) Have him become the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Have him pen complete dissertations about love, grace, and peace. Have him forever be the world's foremost authority on the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and almost single-handedly write the owner's manual for church government. Who else but our God would choose a Saul? Amen? Who else but Jehovah Goel, the Lord my Redeemer, would even think about choosing two prostitutes to be some of the most important and memorable women in the Bible, Rahab and Mary Magdalene? Who else but Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord my sanctifier, would take someone whom everyone in the ancient world hated with a passion, like, like that mean dog that everybody just wants to kick, and transform them from a lying, cheating, stealing tax collector into someone on staff at the disciples' roundtable and the writer of one of the Gospels, like Matthew. Amen? And here's why our God would do such a thing. Because he couldn't do anything else. It's not, it's, it's, it's not just what he does. It's who he is. He is Jehovah Yasha, the Lord my Savior. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord of peace. And yes, it's true, he definitely is Jehovah Hashapet, the Lord my judge. And he is Jehovah Sigdeknu, the Lord of righteousness. But please hear this. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. He, he, you, it is you he wants to be Jehovah Rohi, the Lord your shepherd. And more than anything, he wants to be Jehovah Shammah, the Lord of your present, the Lord of your today, the Lord of your right now. Listen, church, he wants so badly to be your right now God. So you ask, why did the Father and Jesus always seem to pick such lowly, unimportant, regular, messed up people who seem to be more like you and me, or worse, than heroes of the Bible? Well... It's for the same reason the Holy Spirit continues to knock on the door of our hearts today. He loves us, yes. And he'll always passionately pursue us, of course. But the bottom line is that God wants all the glory because he deserves all the glory. I mean, come on, jacked up folks like this can't help but boast only of God and his goodness and his mercy. Am I right? That's why Paul was writing to the church In 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, and he says, and guess what? All that was just the introduction. We'll get to the message here in a minute. But Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, well, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them. They just can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot even be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we, hallelujah, we understand these things. For we have the mind of Christ. 
the need for spiritual detox. Paul identifies the need for spiritual detox in the first few verses of chapter 3. Yes, now there's some spiritual immaturity at play here. There's probably some folks in the Corinthian church who are just choosing to be carnal. But then there are those who really want to be God's kind of person. And maybe they've been really close to God in the past. But somewhere along the way, Melissa, life happened. Hey, I get it. We get busy. We get bogged down with work, school. The wrong people start gaining influence over us. We let our guard down because we're tired. It happens. And we see that it's happening here as Paul writes in chapter 3. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another, quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world, Paul writes? And so there it is. Jealousy, quarreling, controlled by sinful nature, living like unsaved people of this world instead of citizens of the kingdom. Yes, there comes a time when the only thing we can do is detox our spirit. Right, Valerie? Sometimes it just doesn't, it it just seems as though the world is crashing down on us. Am I right? I mean, we all hear the, we hear the cliche, I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. But isn't it true when you have demanding job, car payments and a mortgage, kids in school and sports, certainly no time for date night with the spouse. I mean, you can't even find time to get an oil change. Am I right? The good news is that God is not surprised or overwhelmed by your challenges. Even the great apostle Paul and his companions were experiencing even worse dilemmas while establishing the early church. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he pens, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, just a little FYI, he's saying just a little FYI if we were to, if he were texting them, a little FYI about the trouble that we were having in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed below, but beyond our ability to endure. Now, that doesn't sound like Paul, does it? We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, listen to this, listen to what God did. We stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God. Amen? As a result of the pressing, as a result of the seeming foreboding destruction and life-crushing problems that they were having and experiencing, they stopped relying on themselves and learned finally to rely on our God who raises the dead. How can you not rely on a God like that? And he, he did rescue us from mortal danger, even though it didn't, we didn't know how he was going to do it. He did do it, and he will rescue us again, Paul says. So it built his faith. It built his faith. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. Paul continues, now we can say with great confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived a God, with God, a God-given holiness and sincerity in all of our dealings. We have depended on God's grace and not our own human wisdom. You see, it is God who enables us 
along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us. He has identified you by placing his Holy Spirit in your hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything that he has promised you in his word. Amen? Well, he continues in chapter 3. He says, since this new way, well, what is the new way? The life-giving way of the Spirit and grace, not the Old Testament laws and you must do this and you shall not do this. But since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses who had to put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel wouldn't see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, listen to this, to this day, whenever the old covenant is read, the same veil covers the mind so that they cannot understand the truth. Did you realize that when an unbeliever reads the Old Testament, there's no possible way they can understand it? You, and that's why when I, when I talk to somebody who, who is uh, thinking about becoming a Christian, they're, they're seeking out a relationship with Jesus, or maybe they're a new Christian, I strongly encourage them, and you should too, to read the New Testament. Because you cannot understand the Old Testament without New Testament glasses. Brother Gary, am I right? You've got to read that Old Testament with New Testament glasses so that you can see the prophetic voice of what is coming in the future. Amen? And this veil can only be removed by believing in Christ. That's what the Word says. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with a veil and they do not understand, Paul writes. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is spirit. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and get this and then reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Talk about needing a detox. There is a veil that is over all minds that can only be removed by believing in Christ. Did you realize that? The good news is that even as this scripture tells us, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Well, what, is, what about detoxing our spirit? Well, Paul clearly states that the Lord is spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Well, many things, but definitely, I would say, toxicity. Wouldn't that be included in that list? Now, why does God even care about removing the veil and us being spiritually detoxified? Because all of us who have had that veil removed, listen to this, can see and reflect the glory of God. You see, it always goes back to God and him being glorified. Why? Because he's worthy of honor and he's worthy of glory. And the Lord who is spirit, he makes us more and more changed into his image to glorify him. You see the partnership here? Are you beginning to see the symbiotic relationship between you and God? As we detox our spirit, we gain the freedom to allow God's Holy Spirit to make us more and more into his image, which only serves to bring more glory back to God. I love how God works, don't you? And in the spirit of the late great TV uh, Salesman Billy May said, but wait, there's more. Therefore, in chapter 4, therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. 
We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. If the good news is preached and it's hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus is Lord and we ourselves are the servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let there be light in the darkness and has made this light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing a great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not of ourselves. Praise God for being a fragile clay jar, a cracked pot. Amen. We are pressed on every side by troubles, Paul says. But we are not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. Hunted down but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down but we are not destroyed. Those through suffering our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen In our bodies, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus and so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke, Chris. I believed in God. So I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. Together with you, the Corinthian church, all of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Amen. That's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Praise God. For our present troubles are very small. They won't last very long. Yet, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at our troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Now listen to this because we're going to start establishing the importance of detoxifying our spirit. Chapter 5 says, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made by God himself, not by human hands. You see, we are not our bodies. Don't get it twisted. We, you are not, praise God, amen. That's good news for some of us and even better news for others. But it's emphatically important to establish first and foremost that we are spirit beings who just so happen to temporarily reside in these earthly tents that we call mortal bodies. Therefore, if we are spirit, how vitally important does it become to make sure that we detox our spirit, which brings us to our goal. I think we can all agree that a toxic spirit 
is fairly easily identified and or described. But what are we shooting for when we seek out a spirit detox? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry, Paul says. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every every kind. Does it sound like he's been detoxed? We have been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. But we prove ourselves by our purity and our understanding and our patience and our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. Does it sound like Paul's been detoxed? We faithfully preach the truth, God's power working in us. We use weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. Does it sound like Paul's been detoxed? We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored, even though we're well known, but Paul's been detoxed, so it doesn't matter. We live close to death, but praise God, we're still alive. He's been detoxed. We've been beaten, but we haven't been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy because he's got a detox spirit. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. How could Paul have that mentality? Because he has a detoxed spirit. And that's the goal. That's a detox spirit. So beginning the process, spirit detox, how are we going to begin this process of spiritual detox? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. As a matter of fact, Paul asked some really intriguing questions himself, thought-provoking questions in chapter 6. He says in verse 14, how can righteousness partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? Then, after Paul recites some Old Testament promises from God, he implores us in chapter 7, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates our body and spirit. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, let's read just a couple of more of these foundation scriptures before we get into that. Because you, you, you see there, he wants us to purify everything that contaminates our spirit. Not just for our own benefit, because how many of you know it's going to be beneficial when you detox? It's going to be beneficial. It's going to benefit you on your job. It's going to benefit you in your marriage. It's going to benefit you in your relationship with your children and extended family members. Detoxing your spirit will benefit you in many ways. But the primary goal is perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So if for no other reason, let's do it for that. Psalm 13, 2 says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Can I get an amen on that one? (laughs) And day after day I have sorrow in my heart. He's saying, the psalmist is, is, is lamenting, how long will my enemy triumph over me? Sounds like he needs a detox. Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh have minds set only on what the flesh desires. 
Sounds like somebody who needs a detox. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Anybody want peace? Anybody want an abundance of life? Let your mind be governed by the Spirit. Let it be detoxed. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. You ever felt angry with God? Your mind is governed by the flesh. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. There it is, plain and simple. You can argue about it all you want, but that's what it says. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives you life. Because of righteousness that is applied by God to you through his Son. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. The obligation is to live according to the Spirit. Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will have the ability, you will finally have the power to put to death the misdeeds of your body and you will live. Amen? So how do we do that? How do we do that? A couple of different ways. Number one, you think about killing something. If we want to begin to detoxify something, how many of you know that soda pop is pretty toxic? Amen? Who thinks soda pop is good for you? Coca-Cola. Who thinks it's good for you? Michaela, you're wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to call you out. It is not good for you. There's all kinds of chemicals, man-made substances, things that God never intended to be in a human body. Amen? But how many of us drink it? Way too much of it. Amen? It happens, right? Coca-Cola is horrible for you. It's a killer. It's a cancer giver. It's just not good for you. So think about it that way. If you are going to detoxify yourself from the chemicals that are in Coca-Cola, what's the first thing you would do? Stop drinking the soda pop, right? No more Coke. You'd stop. There aren't very many things in this world that you cannot kill by starving it. Think about it. What, what, name one living thing that you could not kill by denying it its source of nutrients. Everything dies when you starve it. Everything. So how are you going to starve that, that toxic spirit? Well, first of all, you're going to starve it of doubt. How are you going to do that? Well, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. You're going to starve your spirit of doubt because you're going to begin to look in the mirror every morning and you're going to say, I will trust what God says. Amen? Believing, doubt is simply believing how the world looks and thinks about things. Instead, I want you to begin to trust what the word of God says about us and not what the world and the ruler of the world, your enemy, says about you. You're going to starve your spirit of doubt. That's the first step in detoxification. Starving doubt. I will trust what God says. Then you're going to begin to starve it of negativity. Huh. How are you going to do that? 
Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, O Lord, whose mind is stayed on you, because the person whose mind is stayed on you obviously trusts in you. Now, I've elaborated that a little bit. But the one whose mind is stayed on So how are you going to starve your spirit of negativity? Set your things on the, minds, on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of God. Amen? I will think how God thinks. I want you to get up if you're taking some notes. don't see any pens moving. But if you're taking some notes, I will think how God thinks. So what's the first step? You start with a doubt. I will trust what God says, which means, first of all, you have to know what God says. I will start with a negativity, so I will begin to think how God thinks. And third, I will begin to starve my spirit by starving my body of sin. Isaiah 26 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I will turn to what God wants. Starving it of sin simply means you will turn to what God wants. You know, we, we, we come up with all this big, hairy, monstrous things about sin. We give it all this power. But you know, the best definition of sin is simply missing the mark. The devil wants it to be big. He wants it to be larger than life. He wants it to seem overpowering and overwhelming. But when you get real with that three-letter word called sin, it's missing the mark. That's it. God doesn't hate you. Let that sink in. God doesn't hate you. Many times we're only missing the mark because we're aiming at the wrong thing. You know, we talk about all the time when you, when, you, when you repent, you what? You turn your back on sin and you turn your face to God, right? We say that. Isn't that just re-aiming? Isn't that just readjusting the target that we are shooting for? Start turning yourself to what God wants. Starve it of sin. I will turn to what God wants. So how are we going to start with this? Three ways. Number one, starve it of doubt. I will think. I will trust what God says. Starve it of negativity. I will think what God thinks. And starve it of sin. I will turn to what God wants. Amen? But now, what's the next step in the process? You got to have something to drink. I know most of you live on Coca-Cola or whatever, right? But you got to have something to drink. So what are you going to do now? You're going to start drinking some water, right? You're going to start flushing your system out. You you, you, you had the first step of detoxification. You you cut out the bad stuff. Now you're going to start putting the good stuff in it. You're going to start drinking the water. So first of all, how are you going to feed it? How are you going to feed it? We've starved it, but now we've got to feed the spirit. We've detoxified, but now we've got to feed the spirit so that the good stuff can begin to come back. We're going to feed it, number one, God's word. Now, I'm going to say I will but I'm not going to fill in a blank for you. You've got to make up in your mind what that means to you. If you're going to feed your spirit God's word, what does that mean for you? For some, it may mean that you commit to reading the Bible in a year. For some, it may mean that you just begin to read Proverbs, one chapter a day for 31 days. For some, it may mean that you just want to make it through the New Testament. For some, it may mean that you just want to make it through one gospel. For some, it may mean that you get on a Bible app program and and, and look up something specific. I don't care what it is. The bottom line is you've got to get into God's Word. You've got to feed your spirit God's Word. So I will fill in the blank. Make up in your own mind. You're going to feed it worship. Now, no offense to Melissa, she does an awesome job leading us in what we call worship up here. But to me, that's really not worship. 
To me, worship is how you live your life every day. Living a life of sacrifice. Now, I love coming in here and raising my hands and praising God and and all that stuff. And they do an amazing job leading us in that. But true worship begins when you wake up Monday morning. When your feet hit the ground and you take off to work. How you treat your spouse and your children and your co-workers and your neighbors, that is an act of worship to God. Dying to self, putting your flesh on the cross daily, picking up your cross and following him is the true act of worship. That's worshiping God in spirit and in truth and not just putting on a happy face and lifting your hands on Sunday morning. Feeding your spirit worship. And third and finally, Feed your spirit prayer. Isn't that what we're talking about over this last month? This 21 days of prayer? I pray that that you are participating in that with us. Amen? Feed your spirit prayer. Again, fill in the blank. I will. What does it mean for you? If you don't pray at all, maybe it's, it's praying over a meal. Maybe it's praying just before bed. Maybe it's saying thank you, Jesus, when you get up in the morning. Maybe it's doing a little study on the Lord's Prayer. Maybe it's reading Psalm 23 to yourself. Amen? Whatever it is, if if you're a prayer warrior, take it up a notch. Whatever that means to you, I will. Begin to feed your spirit more and more through prayer. Because 2 Chronicles says, If my people, my God-defined people, people who are called by my name, Christians, amen? If they respond to their devastation by humbling themselves and praying, if they will seek my face, turn their backs on their wicked ways, I'll be there. (laughs) I'll listen. I'll hear from heaven. I'm faithful and just to forgive their sins, and I'll restore their land to health and it starts with prayer so we're going to starve and detoxify we're going to remove doubt by trusting in what God says we're going to remove negativity by thinking how God thinks we're going to strangle out and starve sin by turning to what God wants then we're going to feed our spirit the word worship through our everyday lives and times of prayer. Amen. We're going to open up this altar. Won't you stand with me? We talked about some names of the Lord earlier in this message. Some of my favorite names for the Lord would be Jehovah Bara, the Lord my creator, and Jehovah Emeku, the Lord is with you. But I love how it sounds when you put all that together. Jehovah Bara Emeku. Jehovah Bara Emeku. It means the Lord my creator is with you. <laughs> the Lord my creator is with you. If you feel like you're a little toxic this morning, it's okay. Nobody's here to judge. Probably got a little toxicity myself truth be told probably the neighbor to your left and to the right maybe even a little more toxic than you 
but it's time to detox. Amen? It's time to detox. It's time to begin to strangle out and starve the things that are making your spirit toxic. It's time to begin feeding your spirit a healthy diet. Nutritious food of the word. Water of the word. Amen? Detoxing. Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes if you wouldn't mind. If you feel like that's you this morning, if you feel like, God, there's been some times where I've definitely been closer to you. There's been some things that have just been burdening me. I just feel negativity. Maybe I'm just seeing too much on Facebook. Maybe I just hear too much gossip on the job or even in the church. Maybe I just can't seem to stop battling with my spouse. And God, I just want to detoxify this morning. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand?